Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to be giving a quick analysis of a debate uh, between Jonathan McClatchy and Alex O'Connor, otherwise known as Cosmic Skeptic. If you appreciate this content or any other content in the show, please consider becoming a sponsor. You can follow us on Patreon. You can click on the Become a Sponsor link. Uh, or you can just, you know, even if you don't want to support the show financially, that's fine. If you just want to share the content, please feel free to give a review and a rating on iTunes. I always appreciate those. Now, with that, let's dive right into the show. In a recent debate between Jonathan McClatchy and Alex O'Connor, also also known as Cosmic Skeptic, O'Connor made numerous problematic assertions that I'd like to address. While I thought McClatchy handled many of these objections well, because of the short timing of the debate and the structure, he was not able to address many of the root cause problems, nor offer substantive rebuttals to everything O'Connor had said. I'll briefly respond to his overall methodological problem, list some problems that I think McClatchy dispatched rather easily, and then focus on one claim as a paradigmatic example of the level of research and quality of evidence that often undergirds the atheistic position, even when they appear erudite, confident, and oh-so-very-British. I am here only going to examine the opening statement and initial rebuttal sections of the debate, and even here we'll only address specific parts of that. I, I may go into a part two of this, which will handle other issues raised in the debate, such as the hypothetical of if I would obey if I thought God was telling me to shoot up a school. Here, I'm going to address these few issues from those sections, however. Firstly, O'Connor's main methodological problem is not unique to him. It is nearly universally the stock and trade of the online infidel community in the 21st century thus far, and ironically, there is nothing really new about the new atheism in this regard. It really is quite old hat of logical positivism, wedded to a kind of philosophical naturalism and defended, if we can call it that, with an arsenal of hyper-skeptical memes to be gished out upon an unsuspecting opponent. Anyone even remotely familiar with the tactics of YouTube atheists like O'Connor and Ken, this should not be a new summary, so I'll not bore you with the details here. The one that I would like to address briefly, because it was more than prominent in the debate strategy employed by O'Connor, is the use of hyper-skepticism to avoid presenting reasonable alternatives. Daniel Dennett once called evolution the universal acid, that is, an acid that is so powerful that it could corrode any container that could try to keep that we could try to keep it in. 
For Dennett, this was an apt illustration for evolution because he thought evolution, when applied to any area of knowledge, would radically alter it. Besides that actually being disanalogous to his own original analogy, there were also major criticism of this kind of scientism of logical positivism needed to take a theory of biological speciation and diversity, even if a good one, and apply it to even other areas of biology, such as abiogenesis, let alone non-biological or even non-scientific empirical questions and disciplines. However, the analogy is a good one for something like hyperskepticism, which precisely because both would destroy any container that attempts to hold it. Hyperskepticism is quite rightly compared to the child's insufferably repeated question, why, 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 but why? The child does not yet grasp different levels of explanations and causation. They do not understand when burden has been met or warrant and which does not need to be exceeded. They do not have the awareness of concepts like conceptual justification in which one need not have an explanation for an explanation for it to be the most adequate one of the explanations. Children do not yet know the difference between deduction, induction, and abduction, for example. Atheists will often say things like, quote, when I was a child, I had an imaginary friend too, but I left that behind as a child and I do not want a God-sized imaginary friend as an adult. Well, one can quite easily look at such, uh, a, such a statement as that of what passes for warrant these days for the atheists and say, quote, when I was a child, I had children's questions that didn't understand warrant, and as an adult, I don't want to keep reasoning like a child. Simply asking why, or what is your evidence for that claim, and 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 so on ad nauseum, may help the online infidel community reassure themselves that they have the evidence while theists eschew it because it's the whys all the way down, but it's not actually a good epistemic methodology. This is because it is a universal acid which destroys any worldview or conceptual container which attempts to hold it even the attempt to justify using it. Well, you could think of, why should we ask for evidence? Well, because we want to have evidence-based beliefs. What evidence do you have that we should want to have evidence-based beliefs? Well, because when we don't have evidence-based beliefs, we believe false things. Well, do you have evidence that when we have no other evidence, we believe false things? Yes, here is case X. Well, do you have evidence that in case X is the case of something that is false with no evidence? And on and on. That kind of skepticism is totes adorbs when it can be parroted under the guise of the flying spaghetti monster, invisible teapot, or maximally great law of nature, some type of naturalistic pantheism, all of which reveal a startling lack of understanding on the part of the atheist. But really, it's a methodology that would cut in all directions. The instant that we ask the atheist trying to wield it to defend even their use of it, even that use is dissolved, and a method that falsifies everything even itself is useful for nothing. So when a conner attempts to use this kind of method of, yeah, but how do you know that? Or the, well, I can think of any absurd counter-possibility, and no matter how obtuse, it's clearly evidence that you're wrong— then all he's doing is showing that very well-spoken young British chaps may still have some intellectual growing up to do. Second, there are problems with how O'Connor not only attempted to reject the biblical evidence of the resurrection, but also in how he responded to McClatchy's rejoinders. For example, O'Connor made the claim that the Gospels contradict on, a number, on, on the number of women at the tomb. 
McGlatchy showed that in John, while only one woman is expressly mentioned, the pronouns being in the plural show that there were more than one in mind. O'Connor's hyper-skepticism here attempts to defend this, uh, defend against this as a, quote, contradiction that lends itself as evidence that the Bible is not trustworthy. Why? Because he says that even though it's not technically a contradiction anymore, surely the transcendent God of the universe would have made it more clear because it's the most important event in human history. Well, this makes several errors. Number one, the number of women at the tomb is not the most important event in human history. The resurrection itself may have been, but that would simply commit the composition fallacy to think that just because the major event was so important that every detail carries the same importance such that anyone telling it would all tell the exact same details. Number two, we do not tell stories, even true ones, that way. I may tell one person that I went to the store and bought oranges. I may tell another that this weekend I went with my son to the store because we had to get a lot of groceries. I may tell another that my wife and I, after going to the park, took both of our sons to Vons to buy groceries for the week. Does, that, does the fact that I did not include the same details each time, that I did not include everyone involved or every place or time reference, mean that this is evidence that somehow the story is an invention or that they're evidence that I'm not trustworthy as a narrator or they're all contradictory? Of course not. That kind of standard would just be asinine, and no one outside of a band of merry online atheists ever used such a standard. Number three. O'Connor seems to have a view of inspiration that only the most anti-intellectual and hardline literalistic fundamentalists would defend. Nearly every historical statement on inspiration and authority of the Bible denies a kind of mechanistic dictation of the Bible by God and sees God as using the culture, motifs, literary devices, worldview, backgrounds, customs, etc. of the people to which the original documents were written and of those who composed them. To think that God would write it differently just is for O'Connor to say that he would write it differently. However, if all the narratives agreed on every detail, as McGlatchy and others have often pointed out, we would then be defending the Gospels against the accusation of collusion or deception to, quote, get their story straight. In fact, these kinds of very details and eyewitness accounts is precisely the kinds of things that detectives, reporters, and lawyers look for in authentic testimony. When everyone agrees too much on ancillary details, collusion is often a prime suspect. Next, O'Connor then makes one of the weakest attempts to avoid admitting error that I think I've ever heard. He made the original claim that the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is a contradiction of the story of Lazarus and the rich man, where Jesus did not raise him from the dead. The exact structure of his argument was quite garbled to begin with, and if I'm being honest, and I have had time of th thinking that he really thought the narrative was in contradiction to the parable in the historical sense. I think he likely was trying to make a carrier-type myth development argument and got lost in the weeds. While McGlatchy did an adequate job responding, I think he could have pushed this far more forcefully. He got O'Connor to admit that these were likely not the same person, that is, Lazarus was actually a common name in the first century Palestine, and the Lazarus at the tomb, and the, the imagined or the narratival Lazarus in the parable were different people. Well, one was historical and one was a parable. However, instead of simply admitting that it wasn't a contradiction, O'Connor admitted that they could be different men, but that the contradiction still existed because in one, Jesus intended to raise Lazarus, and in the other, he didn't. 
so there is, he claims, a contradiction of intent. This seems one of the most obtuse things he said in the entire debate. For what contradiction of intent could there be in Jesus' intentions to raise in real life, based on his ministry and mission to demonstrate that he was the giver of life, his real friend who really died, and to a person in a parable used to simply illustrate a point about the efficacy of the word of God in warranting trust and righteousness, precisely over miracles like raising someone from the dead. I thought that if I were debating O'Connor, that I would have stopped the debate and asked him to go in that precise moment to get a cup of tea with me. Surely he would have said no, he was in the middle of something. Well, then I could ask if he has ever agreed in any moment to go get a cup of tea with someone. If he had, then wouldn't that be a contradiction of intent by his standards? Because in one instance, he did agree to go get a cup of tea, and in another instance, he didn't. Well, that's just obviously silly. Different intent in radically different contexts with different people at different times for different purposes do not make contradictions. Plus, one of the contexts, again, was a parable. I don't even know what it would mean to say that Jesus intended to raise Lazarus in the parable. It's a parable. Jesus isn't in the parable. There was no intent within the parable. O'Connor, it's a parable. Now, finally, O'Connor made a claim about the Gospels being, quote, riddled with myth. And his best example, he gave several of them, and honestly, this is his best one. His best example of this was to say that the narrative of Cleopas on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 follows or borrows from the mythic archetype seen in the myth of Romulus and Remus and the vision of Romulus seen by Proculus on the road to Rome. The reason that this argument by O'Connor is so important to note is because it shows the kind of dubious research and pseudo-scholars he is willing to use, clearly without even fact-checking them. This demonstrates that while he employs hyper-skepticism against the theist, he has zero skepticism for anything or anyone that affirms a position that he desires to be true. O'Connor's source for this claim is none other than the unemployed blogger himself, Richard Carrier, the darling of Jesus mythicists everywhere. Anytime an atheist seeks to handle a biblical text, one will find that they often never go to the academic literature, exegetical commentaries, peer-reviewed literature, or biblical languages or backgrounds, etc., but will go to things on the internet like infidel blogs, Reddit, and YouTube. But when they need to rubber stamp a PhD on something, they'll go to people with unrelated academic specialities like Dawkins and Hitchens, or go to the fringe kooks like Carrier and Price, who quite literally couldn't get hired or peer-reviewed by an actual institutions of higher learning, so they created their own quote-unquote think tank to self-publish and quote-unquote peer-review each other's writings. And this is who O'Connor turns to, and as such, it is not a surprise that he gets carried away by fits of whimsy and the deep imagination of Richard Carrier. To make the claim, O'Connor, really just parroting Carrier's earlier debate, says that we can see that this is a mythical borrowing by seeing three facts about the story. Claim number one. Cleopas means to tell, and Proculus means to proclaim, and thus both give functional names to describe their role. How can we rebut this? Well, for anyone familiar with Koine Greek and Latin, this is just laughably false. Cleopas does not mean to tell. 
Not even close, actually. Most think the name is a contraction of the common name Cleopatras, the male version of the name that we know commonly, Cleopatra. This was a name known at the time and was actually a contraction of two words, Kleos and Patros, which would literally mean the glory of or the glory to the father. Cleopas is almost certainly a contraction of Cleopatras. These kinds of names that were original contractions, but then themselves become standalone names, are called hypocoristic uh, names and are common in the New Testament and broader first century period. In fact, they still occur today, such as someone with the last name Smith or even my name, Tyler. Those who doubt this or think this is an all too convenient response simply need to look at the other names in the book of Luke that are examples of this common practice. The person ascribed to the book of, as its author, Lucas, is actually the shortened form of the name Luokanos and Luokios. The same author writing in the book of Acts has others such as Silas, which is a contraction version of Silvanos, and a man think that possibly, and, and many think that possibly Theodos is the contraction of Theodorus. So we can see that Cleopas does not mean to tell. While there are a couple of theories about its etymology not listed here, such as being a patronym for his city of origin, Clophus, one thing we do know is that it doesn't mean to tell. But what about proculus? Does it mean to proclaim? From what I can tell, it doesn't. In fact, we have no ancient sources that tell us the etymology of the word. Plutarch tells us that one of the customs of the Romans is how they named their children. He writes, quote, Another of the same family was Seller, the swift, because of the wonderful quickness with which he provided a show of gladiators on the occasion of his father's funeral. Some, even to the present day, derive their name from the circumstances of their birth. As, for instance, a child named Proculus, if his father be abroad when he is born, or Posthumus, if he is dead. If one of the twins survive, he is named Vopicius. Of names taken from bodily peculiarities, they use not only the Sula, the pimply, Niger, the swarthy, Rufus, the red-haired, but even Caicus, the blind, or Claudius, the lame, wisely endeavoring to accustom men to consider neither blindness nor any other bodily defect to be any disgrace or matter of reproach, but to answer to these names as if they were their own. However, this belongs to a different branch of study. End quote. Here, proculus is used of a child conceived and born while the father is away. The Latin literally means as from behind, or something close to that. It could literally be uh, something, quote, like the anus. <laughs> that could be what it actually means. But likely refers to it either being done while the father's back and turned, not as a pejorative, or something like it being done in secret behind his back while he's away. That is, the mother cheated on him. Another option given to us by Festus is that the name is a diminutive of the term Procus, which can mean either suitor, possibly again referring to the illegitimacy of being born from a suitor and not from the husband who is away, or even a term meaning a prince. Think of parents calling their son our little prince. That's also what Procus can mean. Here, we find, however, that neither Cleopas nor Proculus means anything like to tell or to proclaim. So therefore, there's no thematic overlap. <coughs> Claim number two, both Cleopas on the Emmaus to Jerusalem and Proculus from Alba Longa to Roma were traveling in a westerly direction. 
What's the rebuttal for this? Well, Alba Longa was southeast of Rome. This would mean Proculus was traveling northwest-ish. While we do not know the exact location of Emmaus, we have about nine candidate locations. The various contenders for their, the location of Emmaus are mostly to the west of Jerusalem. Six out of nine of them are west. But if they meant cities like Ram, Shemesh, or Ardas, then it would have been either north or south. Since the text says that Cleopas and his companion are going toward Emmaus, they would have been traveling in a westerly westerly direction, though depending on the location, they could have been going northwest, west, or southwest for five of the possible locations, but not the other three. This means that in the case of that they were maybe they were traveling in the same direction, but maybe not. At least this claim is dubious, and given the range of possibilities that would be considered westerly, this would be approximately a fourth of travel narratives, hardly a motif-making feature of a story. Claim number three. Both trips would have been 14 miles. Okay, how do we rebut this? This is strange, because Carrier, and thus O'Connor, who's just parried him, get it wrong on both accounts. The distance from Alba Longa to Rome was about 12 miles, not 14. In Luke 24, 13, we're told that the distance from Jerusalem to Emmaus was 60 stadia. A stadia was equivalent to about 607 feet, or 185 meters, meaning that the distance from Jerusalem to the location referred to as Emmaus in the text would have been just under seven miles. This comports with about eight of the nine possibilities that archaeologists give for the site of Emmaus, as mentioned above. So not only does Carrier get the distance of both of them wrong, but they're not even in the same distance. In addition, Luke gives the distance while Plutarch does not. It would be the most obscure kind of myth-making motif parallel if the distance had to be 14 miles, but not only does a text not even need to mention the distance to fit the motif, but another text could mention a different distance and still meet the requirement of the motif. This kind of absurdly misleading parallelism is precisely why no one takes Jesus' mythicists seriously. Well, no one except for online atheists like O'Connor. Okay, there's also unstated claim number four, and that is that we can see that Luke was borrowing these mythic details from a motif established by Plutarch's account of Romulus. He doesn't come out and say it, but that's actually the case he's making. <coughs> so how do we rebut it? Well, this kind of assumption on the part of the mythicists reveal that in their hunt to find vague parallels to prop up basic chronology is left to the wayside. Even if we grant the critical late dating for the Gospels of Luke to the late 70s, this would be almost certainly at least, at least a decade prior to Plutarch's writing, but probably more since he probably wrote it in, Plutarch probably wrote it in the first decade of the second century. While I could argue for the dating of Luke's gospel into the 50s, I do not need to present that here since even the latest dating offered by scholars is almost certainly pre-Plutarch. So not only is this series of quote-unquote facts debunked and does not present a known mythic motif in the first century biographical literature, but if there was any borrowing to bolster a story, the causal arrow would be exactly reversed from the direction that Carrier, O'Connor, and the other mythicists wish us to accept, because it would actually be Plutarch that was borrowing from the New Testament. 
Now, with that, I think I've shown that not only is O'Connor epistemic, O'Connor's epistemic methodology wildly problematic and not actually the rationally responsible method to compare and evaluate competing worldviews or explanations, but also his engagement with biblical and ancient literature, historiography, and historical facts is done in an irresponsible manner of the Jesus mythicists. This may fly at places like the University of Northern New Jersey and the Center for Inquiry uh, Institute, but they should not be accepted by any rational, truth-seeking, or academic individuals. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or find the group page on Facebook. Good night and God bless.